0: Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, it is so nice to hear those voices. Uh, We are looking at 1 Thessalonians for a while. And as I said last week, I'm trying to make sure that this feels a little bit more kid-friendly because we don't have nursery or children's church or any type of Sunday school for them. Uh, So we're going to have this week as well a couple (sighs) goofy videos Uh, produced and directed by none other than Preston Miller and Jeff Lopez, starring your very own Pastor Tim. Uh, Just sort of to make sure that we give some lightheartedness to sometimes some very serious topics so that everyone stays on board with us so we don't lose anyone during the half hour that we have together. Uh, But we're looking at First Thessalonians and it is always a good thing to get good news and as we talk about good news of course we talk about the gospel and I always get the question asked of me from time to time Tim how would you summarize the gospel because it's the job and responsibility not of me alone but of every one of you to share the gospel but I totally understand a few things when I say we all should share the gospel. One of the things is we immediately get scared of doing that. And we get scared because sometimes of the rejection. Sometimes the, people, the way people respond to us is pretty negative. We don't know how they're going to respond. And so we, just, we know the Holy Spirit is telling us, share with them, but we're scared to do it. There's no way to get over that fear except doing it. There's no way to get over the fear of standing up in front of public and speaking unless you get up and you start doing it. And yes, there will be times where you fumble all over yourself, but the next time you might get better, the next time you might get better. So the fear side of sharing good news with someone, you have to conquer that by doing it. There's no other way around it. But the second thing that often hinders us from sharing the gospel is what do you actually share? What do you say to someone? And you need to know it off the cuff of your sleeve because you don't have time to go look on your Bible app, how to share the gospel. Hold on, hold on, no, no, no. I know we only have 10 seconds in line together and you're six feet away so I have to shout to you, but hold on, just wait, just wait. You don't have time to wait. You have to have something ready to go. And so I'm going to share with you this morning something incredibly simple, and a little bit weird, but I'm hoping it sticks in your mind because Paul's going to be talking about the gospel as we come to First Thessalonians chapter 1, but we need to know what the gospel is ahead of time because he doesn't define it. He just simply says the gospel came to you. Bang. So what is the gospel? I'm going to propose to you that the gospel can be remembered by you if you remember this simple sentence. Cold fingers juggle green reindeer. Let's say that together. I, I, I see the puzzlement on your face. So maybe it makes sense if we all say it together. Cold fingers juggle green reindeer. Okay, so does everybody understand the words at least? How many of you have heard those words put together in one sentence? No one. But it may stick. It may come to your mind, oh, what was that weird thing about cold hands? No, cold fingers, what do they do? They juggle. What do they juggle? Green reindeer. Now, if I was able to juggle, as most of my kids are able to juggle, I have no idea how they pick that up, but if I was able to juggle and if I was able to find little green reindeer at the beginning of summertime, I would attempt to give you a visual lesson of cold fingers juggling green reindeer. Now those words by themselves are silly, they don't match, and I actually looked on Google Images to see if I could find someone juggling green reindeer. I didn't get any pictures. I can't believe no one has done that. There is an opportunity for a YouTube video right there. If you have cold fingers, Juggle some green reindeer, and you might end up in a sermon illustration one day. So, obviously, cold fingers juggling green reindeers is not the gospel, but it is a device to help us remember five very important parts of the gospel. Cold fingers, creation and fall. Juggle has to do with justice. Green has to do with grace, and reindeer has to do with response now I spelled response a little bit differently there I was thinking of a different language and a different word completely and spell check did not catch it but it is the word response not reponse. I've got no idea what repons means even if it's a word I'm sure someone will tell me but we have five very important basic steps in sharing the gospel creation it is Men and women were created in the image of God. And we were created perfectly and beautiful. And we had harmony with God. And we had a relationship with Him. It's what we see in the Garden of Eden. It was a beautiful moment when God created men and women. And we were created to have a relationship with Him. And that relationship was good. Cold. Creation. Then comes fingers and the fall. But in this creation... Adam and Eve had a choice, and they chose to rebel against God and deny Him and reject Him. And that created a scenario where God's justice or juggling came in. And God's justice said, If you sin, you've fallen short of my glory, and every sin deserves what? God's judgment. And it is an eternal judgment. And so God exercised His justice. And His just punishment for us is eternal damnation. There's no way around that. You can't have a gospel message without sin and its punishment. Otherwise, it's not gospel. Otherwise, there's no good news attached to it. And the good news is the green. The grace. But God decided to intervene and send His Son to die in our place and take our punishment. And so God was just. He exercised his justice, but he didn't display it on on you. He displayed it on his son, Jesus Christ. That's grace. And you can ask the question, why did God do that for us? There's no reason but undeserved, unmerited love and favor. That's all it is. And so you are left with the response, the reindeer part of things. And the response is, do you believe that? Do you believe that we were created in God's image, that we have a relationship with Him, that sin entered in and there was a fall and now we are trapped in our sin without any hope because God's justice says, I deserve holiness, you're not giving me holiness, therefore you have earned a place in hell, but God gives you an opportunity to escape that punishment through His Son by grace, do you believe? That Gospel presentation can be done in 20 seconds. And their response, beautifully, is not dependent upon you. It's not dependent on how well you get through that cold-fingers-juggling-green-reindeer. It doesn't matter if you mess up the order. It doesn't matter if you actually miss a step. Because God, in His Holy Spirit, uses all of those words to convict the heart. And when the heart gets convicted by the holy spirit not by your persuasion or your ability or your perfection in speaking the gospel but when the holy spirit convicts and brings a change to that person's heart the angels in heaven rejoice at a saved soul so when paul talks about the gospel he's talking about that creation that fall that justice that grace and the response and that's where we are in 1st Thessalonians chapter 1 verse So if you're there with me, we're told, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep convictions, you know how we lived among you for your sake. Paul says this church at Thessaloniki, this small church, this brand new church, knows about the power of the Holy Spirit coming and bringing this good news. The good news being a rescue from the fall and destruction and justice and grace. Great news, good news. News that changes not just simply a life, but it can change a family and it can change a culture. And it has changed the world. And one day it will change the world completely. When God ushers in his kingdom here on earth in fullness, a new heaven and a new earth. But look at what verse 5 tells us about this power. Paul says, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. Paul mentions other times in the book of Acts and in other epistles that even though he is eloquent, even though he can speak well, especially in front of people, It's not His ability to speak that persuades a heart and a mind to change. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. That is beautiful news because none of us will become a rock star behind a pulpit or behind a podium. If that was the case, we already would have been there being motivational speakers and selling millions and millions of books and crowding theaters and auditoriums. But that's not us. That's okay. Because God doesn't need The persuasion of our words. All he needs and all he provides through that pronouncement of the gospel is his Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the most mysterious of the three persons of the Trinity, often misunderstood, often sometimes referred to as it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a he. He has a personal pronoun. He is just as real a person as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And his sole job, his sole task, is not to make himself known. It's not to promote himself. It's to promote the Father. And it is to bring people into a relationship with the Father through the Son. And what he does is he goes about Like he says in John chapter 3, like a wind that blows and you see the effect, but you don't see how it's coming. It's mysterious. It's invisible to our perception, although we feel it. We feel the Holy Spirit just like we feel the wind. We see the effect of the Holy Spirit just like we see the effect of the wind. And his effect is to make change. Sometimes in the believer it's to bring conviction. If you've ever had that moment where you go, oh man, that, ooh, I didn't do that right. That isn't an angel sitting on your shoulder trying to convince you of something that's right versus the devil on your other shoulder telling you keep doing it. That is the Holy Spirit and Him alone that brings about that conviction, that brings about that desire for change, that brings about justice, on Christ for me. He works miracles in our lives. And Paul says, we didn't come with you just simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep convictions. You know how we lived among you for your sake. So the Gospel presentation and the way that Paul lived were the same. They couldn't say, oh, well, you didn't talk about sin. He talked about it. He was on full display of who he was and what the Holy Spirit had done in his life. There was no surprise. And in fact, in Romans chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. It's a very short verse. Romans chapter 1, uh, I did have that marked ahead of time. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, This is Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of creation, the fall, justice, grace, and a response. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Paul knew that in those words of cold fingers juggling green reindeer, he knew in that moment when that was pronounced there's power. There's power. That's the cue for the first video. That's the cue. Jeff, did you finally get that thing done that we needed you to- Oh man. Yeah, there's no power in that outlet. Excuse me. So, we need to get that thing over. What? Oh! Yeah. Come on. There's no power there. Get this sweat before Sunday. A lot of work to do. Oh, it's really dirty. Excuse me. There's no power in that outlet. What the? I only have another two days to get ready. I need to practice this sermon so it's ready on Sunday. Power is... Oh, don't please don't clap. It'll get to my head and I'll want to keep doing this. There's real power not in our effort but being connected to the Holy Spirit. There has to be that connection of our words to relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it simply won't work. The gospel simply will not affect change unless God is in that moment. How do you know that God is in that moment for you? You don't. All you're doing is being faithful by declaring the word. God takes care of the moment. God takes care of the power. God takes care of the conviction and the connection. We take care of our responsibility like Paul did for the church at Thessaloniki. I stand and declare it. Cold fingers, juggle green reindeer. How many do you think will remember that next week? Eh, a few. That's awesome. That's more than what we had before we did this. But Paul continues and talks about, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, some more essential elements as we proclaim the Gospel. He's already made an allusion to this in verse 5, where he says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. He says in verse 6 and 7, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you... Uh, for you welcomed us and the Lord, and the message in the midst of uh, severe suffering for the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Arcadia, which are just parts of uh, parts of Greece where Thessalonica is. He's telling them, "You've become imitators." Imitation is one of the greatest forms of flattery, right? When someone imitates you, as long as they're not being one of those pestering imitators where they say everything you say right after you say it type of irritating imitators. But Paul's not talking about the irritating imitators. He's talking about the real essential type of imitation. And he starts out in that verse 6 by saying, hey, you imitated us, and he elsewhere says, follow me as I follow the Lord. Don't follow me, but follow me as I follow the Lord. As you see the Lord in my life, take that as an example and make it your example. So Paul says exactly the same thing in verse 6. You became imitators of us and the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering for the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So even though whatever the church was going through in Thessalonica, which we see a little bit in Acts chapter 17, that... The place was just filled with idols, and they had problems with idols everywhere. Yet even in the midst of all that, they focused upon the one thing that was real and true for them. The change in their heart produced evidence. It produced fruit, and that fruit was they imitated Paul as he imitated the Lord. That he followed the Lord. So that change was real. That change was <laughs> that change was genuine. Paul's talking about genuine conversions. Uh, There's a terrible, terrible statistic that comes out of some revivals. And and I'm not going to mention names, but I think you can kind of put two and two together. Uh, But these massive, massive crusades that take place. And the local churches follow up with everyone that comes forward and says, yes, I want to be a follower of Christ. By the end of three months, less than 1% of those people that walk forward claiming Christ live the Christian life. It's like the parable of the sower. There's a lot of excitement at at the beginning, but as soon as that excitement gets over, they kind of fall by the wayside. Not everyone, but statistically speaking, it is a real, real difficult time for the organizers of those crusades when... The imitation and the genuineness of those conversions aren't seen. There's great excitement at the moment, but God's not in the great excitement for the moment. He's in for the long haul. How are you going to live your life? Not for the next five minutes, but for the rest of your life. How are you going to example the genuineness of your faith? It is by imitation. So it brings to question... The, the question, if we're to live like Christ, if we're to live as His example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, it says, whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. So John the Apostle, who walked with Jesus for over three years, tells every believer, if you claim to know Him, if you claim to love Him, if you claim that He is your Lord and Savior, if you claim His grace, if you claim His cross, His work, then you're going to live like Him. If you claim it, you got to live it. See, there's a lot of people that love going around claiming this, claiming that, saying this, saying that. And everywhere in Scripture, God and every prophet and every apostle said, it doesn't matter what you say. It matters how you live. See, even the devil himself says, Jesus is God. He knows it. He can proclaim it and state it. But has it had any change in him? Nope, not a single bit. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters how you live it. And so the question comes up, well then how did Jesus live? If I'm supposed to live like him, how did he live? Well that in and of itself would be an amazing 52 week sermon series, just to scratch the surface of how did Jesus live. But suffice to say, he lived gently and humbly in Matthew 11:29. 29. Gently and humbly. He did not come in with His own power and force and command obedience and worship. No, He came in meek and lowly, humble and gentle. He tells the sheep, I'm here to take care of you. Not to beat you into submission, but to gently love you into submission. He is gentle and He is humble. We're told in Mark chapter 10, verse 45 that he came as a servant. So we should have in our mind that we need to be servants before rulers, servants to each other, to the world around us. Where we have the ability, we should give of ourselves to others. That's what Christ did. He says, I did not come to be served, I came to serve. Imagine. How many arguments in a family or in a relationship would end immediately if each person said, instead of trying to get my own way and be served, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? If conversations in the church happened that way, well, I didn't get my own way. Well, okay. Okay. How do I serve? How can I serve? A totally different mental focus on our role and the importance of others. That's following Jesus' very example. He also said in John 6, 38, that he did not come to promote his own power, his own opinion, or his own agenda. He said, I have not come to do my own will. I've come to do the will of the one who sent me. Imagine if all of God's people were focused on fulfilling God's will in our life instead of trying to get our own way. Wow. I'm not just talking in a church, I'm talking in every context we have. If we strive to follow the Father's will instead of our own desires. Now, sometimes they match up. Totally awesome but oftentimes our own desires are self-promoting, self-preserving, and, well, all about self. Me, 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 me. What can I get out of it? What do I get? What do I get? What do I get? How am I feeling? How am I hurt? How am I promoted? How am I appreciated? Jesus said, no, no, no. If you're going to have a relationship with the Father through me, it's not about you. It's about him, the Father. He takes our priority He takes our emotion. He takes our first place. It's His will be done, not my own. That's how Jesus lived. He also lived in Philippians and in John, obedient to God. He wanted to fulfill God's every desire. We do not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from His mouth. Scripture is our feast for our soul. And as we feast in our soul, it affects our mind. It affects our thinking. It affects our plans. It affects our hopes, our dreams. It affects our feelings. As we feast upon God's Word, it has a refreshing role in making us I don't mean to rhyme, whole. It makes us whole. And that's what Jesus wanted. He wanted to be obedient to God first and foremost. He was also sympathetic and holy. Oh, sympathy. He, was, he exuded sympathy. He lived sympathy. He understood what it was like for suffering. And he lent a hand, a touch of a leper, he showed sympathy. That connects him with that compassion idea. But he was sympathetic. He knew when someone was having a bad day, he didn't jump all over them. He didn't scold them and say, hey, you just need to think better. He met them where they were. That sinner, that tax collector, that prostitute, met them where they were and loved on them. Didn't excuse their sin. He addressed it every single time. Sometimes he didn't even have to say it. He just had to look at them and they knew, oh, the conviction overwhelmed me but he was sympathetic. He understood that we are weak, that we're not as strong as we pretend to be, that we are more selfish than we let on, that we do a good job of hiding lots of things from lots of people in our mind and in our heart. Jesus knows all that and was able to relate to us. He's called a high priest that is able to relate to us, that he knows what we're going through. He knows what it's like to feel tired. He knows what it's like to feel hungry. He knows what it's like to feel alone. Remember, every single one of his disciples on his A-list left them, denied him, lied about him, and left him to die alone. When he needed him most, his friends took off. So he knows what it's like to have someone disappoint you. He knows it. And yet through all of that, he is filled with holiness. It never slipped once to get to him. Never. That is how Jesus lived. That is how Paul lived in front of that church at Thessaloniki. And that is what we are called to do, to be imitators of Christ. And if... That feels like a tall order. If that all of a sudden goes, Tim, there is no possible way I can do all that. I can't even list the first thing you said. Uh, It was um, gentle and humble. I can't even get the first one. There's good news and bad news. The good news is, uh, well, maybe it's not bad news. There's good news. We're all in the same boat. Not a single person here has it all together and perfect, living just as Jesus did. All right? We're all in the same boat struggling, which means it gives us ample opportunity to be sympathetic with one another, humble towards one another, gentle towards one another. We have ample opportunity to grow and mature as believers. He has put us in the right context for great, healthy, spiritual growth. That's awesome. So there is only good news, that we're all in the same boat in a perfect place to grow spiritually. So spiritual growth, living like Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, all is talking about the same thing. Maturing as a believer, all talking about the same thing. It is imitating the character of Christ. Now, uh, he continues on, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 8. So he's already talked about the idea of the power of the gospel coming. He's already talked about the idea that, hey, you guys are imitating Christ and it's well known. People are talking about you. People are always going to be talking about you. It's whether they're talking about good things or bad things about you, right? I mean, I don't mind if people are gossiping about me if it's all about, oh, wow, he's sympathetic. Oh, wow, how can he be any more gentle? How can that guy be any more loving? How can that guy be any more understanding and forgiving? I'd love to be gossiped like that. That's not how it goes, but imagine for a moment that's all there was in your life to gossip about. Listen to what Paul says in verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Arcadia, two towns that he's already mentioned, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, (laughs) we do not need to say anything about it wow imagine if the worst thing that someone could ever lay on you and gossip about you was wow their faith it's pretty well known in these parts and every part they go to if that's ever said of us we've like that's like total victory Now, it's not time to give up if you get that, but it's like, don't get a big head and think you've arrived, but, man, that would be awesome. Well, what are they like? Oh, wow, they have strong faith. What are they like? Oh, they're faithful. What are they like? Oh, their faith is obvious. They walk into a room and all of a sudden you just know they've met with God today. There's faith. Do you ever see them have a bum day? Oh, yeah, they have bum days, but man, even in that bumness, they have faith. That church in Thessalonica was being persecuted because they would not follow the idols that were around them. Made fun of and ridiculed. But what was known about them was their faith. Their faith. Can that be said of us? Can that be said of you? That you are known By your faith. First and foremost, when someone thinks of you, do they think, oh, there's a person of faith. What do you think comes to their mind? Paul says, when I think about you, the church of Thessalonica, when other people think about you, what comes to our mind is your faith. Your rock-solid dependence and love of Jesus Christ in your life and in your church. That is something for us to aspire to. Absolutely. So it is a good thing to hear a good report. Cue the video. So we have to make a decision, and this decision is going to be hey, Tim, incredibly you, important. You, you got a minute? No, just wait, I got something I'm doing. Okay. And so when we make this no, decision, Tim, it it's will really be... important. Just give me a minute, it's okay. This is super important. Where are we going Tim! To go? I have news! We're talking about lunch! good news! Yeah, I passed my school! Yes! Oh, good news! Yeah! That's good news! Congratulations! So, in, in all seriousness, the next time you see Preston, he just graduated with his bachelor's degree. So that is good news, good report! And we had guest appearances by Sam Guerrero and... Uh, Laura Vance. That was awesome. Even though you couldn't see Sam, you may not know who that was. But that was Sam. Uh, So, hopefully, the next time you think of Preston, the next time you see him, you think, oh yeah, that good report, he graduated. That's how people are to respond to us. Oh, I hear them. I know them. I've seen them. Yeah, I I haven't met them, but I've heard of them. Their faith. They're people of faith. They're a person of faith. They're a person who imitates Christ, and it's obvious. That's a beautiful report to get from someone. Moving on to verse 9. For they themselves report that the kind reception you gave us. So not only was their faith evident, but Paul also says people have talked about how well you have received us how hospitable you were, how kind you were to us, how generous you were to us. So people have known not only your faith, but your generosity. People have not only seen your lives, but they've seen your lives affect people in a way that brought blessing to them, that actually helped them out. He continues in that same verse, they tell, they tell how you turned turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I mentioned that Thessaloniki was a city that was, uh, from last week, it was a cultural center and a commerce center. Lots of trade happening from the east to the west and back and forth. But it was a place that was just filled with idols. It was like Athens. There was a temple on every corner. Everyone had their own god. Everyone from their own culture had their own religion. And they all worshipped idols. And it was a big, big business in the town of Thessaloniki to sell idols, resell idols, and just to give in to these pieces of wood, a rock, a piece of paper, and pray to it, and, and to hold it as a lucky charm, and, and to put it in your pocket, to put it around your neck and think that no matter where you went, somehow you were protected or you were bringing good luck or or good luck would follow you. And it's not just an ancient world problem. It's part of every culture. It always has been. Something becomes more important than God and that's an idol. But the church at Thessaloniki, and I want it to be true of us, and I know it to be true of us, that we have turned to serve the true and living God. We don't put faith and confidence in a mountain or another person or a lucky charm or something that somehow will protect us. No. We don't even need a guardian angel to protect us when we have God the Father who has almighty power watching our every step. Why settle for an angel when you have God? Why settle for a rock when you have God? Why settle for a charm around your neck when you have God? You don't need luck. (laughs) You don't need St. Christopher to protect you. You've got God to protect you. And he doesn't have luck. He has love towards you. There is nothing stronger than God's love for you. And the church at Thessaloniki lived in that love and knew that source of love, that source of grace, that response was only towards the living and true God. Psalms and and the Old Testament is just filled with illustration after illustration about, uh, well, well, think think of uh, Elisha for a moment and at Mount Carmel. Remember that story, and, and we're, not, we're not going to go back there. I'm just going to mention this real quick. Remember that story where uh, the prophets of Baal were cutting themselves and running around this giant fire, uh, this giant, not fire, but all these logs put up for a fire, and they couldn't, they couldn't get Baal to answer them, no matter what they did. And Elisha said, hey, you know what? Um, I got an idea. Why don't you take my fire? I'm going to pray to the true and living God, but... I want you to douse it with water. Make it as wet as possible so there's no kind of hidden spark that's going to happen. Wet wood. And he did that, and he prayed, and God devoured that wood in an instant. That's the power of a living true God versus the idol that our own hearts create. John Calvin, who was a great reformer in the 1500s, said, The human heart, by its nature, without God, is an idol factory. It loves producing idols. It loves producing things to trust in. My strength, my wisdom, my my mental capacity, my family, my looks. Calvin said your heart is an idol factory. It produces idol after idol after idol until you see the one true living God for who He is and His Son, Jesus Christ, and those idols are shattered. They never answer a prayer. They never offer protection. They never love. But God does. And Paul says, people know this about you. That's who your confidence is. That's who you trust in. That's who you believe in. He continues and says in verse ten, as we finish up, uh, and to wait for his son. So l- let me get the context there of that entire sentence because uh, several verses here have been chopped up, um, not into sentences but into verses. So let's get the whole sentence of uh, verse ten. They tell how you turn from God to uh, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So not only are they known from turning from idols to the living God, but they're also known for something else. Eagerly waiting for Jesus' return. That was a little less than 2,000 years ago that they had that character about it, that they were waiting for Jesus' return. Here's the million-dollar question. When is Jesus going to return? Well, Jesus himself said, hey, no one knows the day or the hour. I'll tell you a couple signs of what's going to happen beforehand, but you're really never going to know exactly when. So you must always be ready for his return. 2,000 years ago, they thought it would happen in their lifetime. 1,900 years ago, they thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. 200 years ago, they thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. Every single Christian generation has believed it's going to happen in their lifetime. And for 2,000 years, it has not happened yet. And they met Him in heaven. They did not meet Him in the skies coming down. Who's to say another 2,000 years might pass before the Lord brings an end to this time. Every generation thought it was the worse off. Every generation thought it could never get any worse. Every generation has thought that at the church. That doesn't diminish the fact that he's going to return. And it doesn't diminish the fact he could return this very hour. The question is, do we live our life believing that? If you knew that you had one more day to live, would you live that day differently? And if we were honest, we'd say yes. I would not look at Facebook if we knew that. One day, if you knew one day you only had one day, you would make the most out of that day. You would love on the people you loved. You would cherish life to the fullest for that one day. That church lived like that that Jesus was returning any day now. And even though the years passed, the decades passed, the centuries passed, the millennia passed, God's church, us, the Bride of Christ, still eagerly awaits His return. And one day, He will. Cue the video. Hey, guys. Hey, what's I'm up? I'm thinking about getting some coffee. Does anybody want any coffee? I would love some coffee. Like uh, a little perk me up? Falling asleep right. over here. I'll be right back with some coffee. Sweet. It's been gone for a long time. I might fall asleep. One hour later. much 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 later hey guys i got the coffee i'm back finally he returned Ugh. well i think part of that got cut out but the point is there will be a time where you know he's coming back and he will arrive we have to live in light of that don't let him catch us sleeping don't let Him catch us not caring. Don't let Him catch us making idols in our heart. Don't let Him catch us with a bad report. But let Him catch us with serving and loving the one true God just like His Son did His entire life. So i want to leave you with this from John 14, 16, uh, which reads... Jesus himself saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says, It is just like you have seen the Father when you follow me. When you turn to me, that great justice and grace happening in our lives because of Christ. And we serve the Father. As we serve the Son, we're serving Him. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank You so much for giving us a relationship with Your Son. And through Your Son, being able to know You and live like Your Son. Father, it is hard to live like Christ. And we are imperfect so many times. So help us, Father to live in a way that pleases You each and every day, longingly waiting for Your return. Father, we know You're coming back. We know Your Son will come triumphant on the clouds. But Lord, we haven't seen it yet. And sometimes that delay makes us think it's not going to happen and it doesn't matter how we live. But Father, we know it does matter. It matters to the people around us how we live. It matters to the world around us how we live. So Father, help us to live like that church in Thessaloniki. Help us imitate the life of Your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week. Take care and live as if Christ was coming back.